Welcome to the 73rd episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we chat about murder. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode when we discussed the crimes of Montgomery, Alabama's very own serial killer, Rhonda Bell Martin. Forewarning, our show is often horrifying and graphic and we do use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for murder. Also, we are passionate and we always have been about true crime, but I have to warn you, We will make jokes and laugh during this podcast. Want to learn more about us? Visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. And if you're even slightly entertained by our Southern charm, leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. If not, reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Also, spread the word and recommend our podcast to your friends and family even your enemies yep thanks cindy how's it going it's going (laughs) oh yeah well i mean i just have to put this out there that um my family just got back from kind of a little family reunion of sorts we had a surprise party for my stepmom and ran into a lot of old family i haven't seen in a long time well they aren't all old some of them are old Um, and then the boys and i and charlie went to silver springs Mm-hmm. I've been there park and we kayaked at the little river there oh my god we saw gators and uh, monkeys lots of turtles birds I mean manatees it was amazing oh, wow so, so I'm energized I'm feeling good and you know ready to go fantastic oh that's awesome yeah it was fun, it was fun. nothing yeah. super exciting happened to me this week um I did get invited to go day drink at the sheriff's department so that they could go over their DUI skills and their, you know, their procedures when they pull over drunk people. Oh my God, you, (laughs) well, I'm sure some of our listeners have heard us drunk before. So uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I don't think I would ever do that because you know me when I'm drunk, girl. Ah, Give them a run for their money. I was like, are they going to like pull us up, like take, get the paddy wagon out and drive us all home? Well, they're probably just like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they would, they went or, you know, call an Uber or something, but they probably would stop you before you got too drunk, too impaired, definitely too impaired to drive. Right. My friend who is the one invited me, her husband is uh, like a criminal investigator with the sheriff's department. That is so cool. It is. And she is, she's a pharmacist, not that that matters, but she told me that the last time she did it, she discovered that she can get shit face drunk and pass all of the field sobriety test, except for obviously the breathalyzer and the one where they do your eyes, her eyes give her away. She had, there was a, there's a name for it. I wasn't even going to try to pronounce it, but it's like, you know, when they tell you to follow and your Uh eyes like lag or they jerk or something like that. Very interesting. Well, you know, I know that one that they do is like start the alphabet at N and, you know, I can't even do that when I'm sober. That's not a fair test. That's what they, no, no. And I know someone that got pulled over and they were just hard up to try to get this person. And they did the field sobriety, like the walking the line, the touching the nose, the tilted head back like six times. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend that just, that happened to um, him on a boat. Oh. And they still, yeah. Yeah. Well, they finally said- Tilt your head back, lift your leg at a 90 degree angle, your arms out and count. Right. Yeah, and the person finally ridiculous. was like, you know what? I'm not doing that. I'm Listen, done. 
this is so this this is very natural that we're having this conversation because this week's episode is very similar to kind of um I don't know if entrapment is the right word that's what you would call that or um I don't know if that's what you would call entrapment I don't think that this case is entrapment but it is kind of like a little bit of somebody eager to get an arrest and maybe not police heavy it, it, it is, it's um, this one, um, if you can recall, I kind of like made this connection from episode 71, La Mata Villejitas. Um, if you remember, I told you that police were so intent on catch- catching the killer that they would pay old women to act as bait, endangering their lives, you know, in hopes to drive out the serial killer, which was quite controversial because they were willing to endanger the lives just for their arrest, right? Right. Um, and this but episode- that like- every day with like their CIs and their, um... well, that's exactly what this case is about. So um, episode 73 is similar in that a controversial decision by investigators backfired, which led to the death of a 2007 college graduate from FSU. Oh, I remember this. You know this story, I'm sure. And you went to FSU. So I'm going to ask you some questions. I did a lot. I've read a lot of articles, read a lot of court documents, all kinds of great articles out there, great documentaries. So I want to be clear right now that I'm going to just tell you the details of the case as I found them, which is not always going to portray the victim in a positive light. But Mm -hmm. you know what? We're human. She was human. Mm -hmm. Um, She was a wonderful person. Um, and the facts are kind of the details are important to the story. So please know that I'm not bashing uh, the victim at all when I give you this information. As right. a matter of fact, like I empathize with this girl because I mean, her story hits home, close to home for me in a number of ways, which, you know, I might bring some of that up. Okay. And, um, and I do remember you telling me a little bit that you wanted to do this. And we talked about also that this is one of those cases where we're just going to give the facts we're not really gonna, like we ha- I think we have to toe the line. Kinda. Right, because there are so many factors that are uh, responsible for what happened here. Everybody has responsibility for that, but ultimately the people who killed her, and I'm giving right. the story away, ultimately the murderers are the ones that are 100% responsible. Correct. So it, this could have been prevented. I will, I will put that out there. Okay, so I'm yes. gonna go ahead and jump right in and introduce you to Rachel Morningstar Hoffman. She was born December 17th, 1984. She was the only child of Irv Hoffman and Marjorie Weiss. I think that's how you say her name. Yes, Weiss. Um, Two people couldn't be more different. Irv was a mental health therapist, or he still is, as far as I know. And his parents were Hungarian Israeli Jews and they were both concentration camp survivors. So if you could imagine just the psychology of growing up with that, he was very serious. He was very stable. He wanted a stable home. He wanted everything, you know. Irv and Marjorie were concentration camp survivors? No, Irv's parents. Irv's parents were concentration um, camp survivors. And Marjorie was also um, a daughter. She was uh, a Jewish. So they all, they both were Jewish. Okay. now, he had a love for classical music. He loved traveling. He stayed active. He was a deep thinker. He was very serious. He's described in one article as being cerebral. So very intelligent, um, philosophical, things, things through. 
whereas Marjorie was quite different. She was more sensual and free-spirited. Um, you know, she kind of just went with the flow. Uh, she was a registered nurse and uh, a massage therapist. But she and Irv did marry, but they were only together for 14 months. They divorced after 14 months. Oh, wow. They were just so different. But they both were very much involved in raising Rachel. Good. They shared custody. Um, they lived in Florida. Irv lived 20 minutes away in Palm Harbor, Florida, while Marjorie and her husband, Mike, uh, who was Rachel's beloved stepdad, uh, he was, Mike was affectionately known as ESD, evil stepdad. Uh, and they lived about 20 minutes away in Safety Harbor. Right. Which is in Hillsborough County. Yes. Right? In, Tampa, in Tampa, yes. Tampa, Tampa area. Tampa yeah. area. Yes. Rachel's parents provided her love, affection, and like every possible great experience that a kid wants growing up. Um, I love course, that area. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't been there. I mean, I've been to the Tampa area, of course, a few times, but it, it is a kind of a beachy touristy area. Yes. Uh, not so much safety Harbor. Um, I mean, Hillsborough County is kind of like, you know, more, but it's not far. I mean, Clearwater is not that far. Clearwater. Safety. I mean, it would be you know, like driving from I mean, my house to yours or no, 20 no minutes. it's a little bit further than that. Okay. I mean, that's probably like an hour. Okay. I mean, because then you have to think about the traffic also. So less than an hour to the, to the touristy area. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, give or take. I mean, it just depends. All right. Well, according to one article I read, Rachel was a people pleaser. It was very easy for her to navigate her two homes. So with her dad, she was serious. She traveled. He took her to Greece, France, Israel, Italy. Um, they went to museums and shows. They played tennis. They discussed philosophy over ice cream. And her dad was serious with a touch of sadness. I mean, she you had me right up to tennis and philosophy. I was like, oh, I want to, uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, she told her friends that she didn't think that her dad would survive if anything ever happened to her. And life with her mom was a little different. Her mom encouraged her to go out and hang out with friends, to make memories, to see the positive side of life, to find humor and sadness and to love everyone. And she told her mom a lot about the things that she did. They basically supported her in anything that she ever wanted to try. She wanted, you know, um, if she wanted to take, try dance, they pay for dance classes, karate, they pay for karate. She tried softball and tennis. She tried music lessons. Basically, she had the best education in enrichment. And she also had um, a solid base of friends from public school. And she went to Hebrew school too. God, it sounds like she could potentially have been one of the most well-rounded people on the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. She, you know, um, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, but basically one of the articles put it, and I thought I had it in here, but it's probably on another slide. Basically they um, were trying anything to see where her talents might lie. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, her talent, she was independent. She was adventurous. She would, she was fun. She liked to party. Um, in her senior year, she had been voted party animal which her parent, her dad was not at all proud of. Yeah, I bet not. She had um, been twice ticketed for juvenile and possession of alcohol. Now, I will tell you that I actually was ticketed once for that. And when I was 15, you? yes. So like, like I said, it touches me on a lot of things because growing up in a beach town is different from growing up in other parts of the, of the United States. I mean, to a kid, it's like a perpetual party, you know? Yeah. Sunshine, beach, uh, music, um, hanging out with friends, getting high. You, you know, Rachel yep. and her friends did all the above. Yep. But she made great grades. She made good grades in high school. And she had plans to attend FSU in the fall of 2004. 
As a freshman. That's as a freshman. Yes. But she almost lost this opportunity because she got into trouble again, but this was more serious because apparently during exam time, she was caught with pot on campus. So it was like, I guess, towards the end of the year, she had already finished everything. She was taking her exams. She was suspended. She wasn't allowed to walk the stage. It is. Yeah. She did get, you know, she wasn't allowed to walk the stage and her parents, you know, they were very upset. They took away the car, the phone, everything. Mm -hmm. They also decided that, you know, maybe she's not old enough to go off on her own to FSU. You know, that is a fear of mine. Like, I think that, you know, my youngest might be I mean, he's like the little studious one, but I'm, you know, my, you know, Lucas, he's the wrestler and, you know, he went to a camp for Arizona State University, which is a D1 wrestling school. And they, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, that is so far away. He was like, yeah, it is. Yeah. So far away. And then it yeah. scares me. I'm like, oh my God, are you going to be like face down in a frat house dying from alcohol poisoning? And he was like, I'm not going to do any frat. <laughs> like, okay. But those are the things as as parents, you worry, yes. Especially when your kids are a little bit, I mean, we both know. I got a helicopter. I mean, like I am the professional helicopter mom here. I well, mean, for- yeah. By the time your youngest one gets up to high school, you're going to, you'll probably be a little bit more relaxed. What, what choice do you have? Oh, All right. So basically her dad was like, you know what? You're not going. And she was devastated. And she begged and she cried. She promised. And her mom's like, okay, well, you know what? We'll talk to your dad. And her dad's like, you know, I don't feel like she's mature enough to balance her studies and partying. I mean, he's right. I mean, it is like the party school. Right. And according, yeah, the Tampa Tribune. So there are three main articles I'm going to be quoting from, but um, they have like a five or six page article on her. And it was so well written. Um, But according to that article, her dad was also worried that her drug use would get worse there. You know, she smokes pot. That's, you know, and, you know, kids when they're positive. And at the mm-hmm. time, it was not legal in the state of Florida, you know, but and different well, it's natural, I mean, it should be legal. Yeah, Just I mean, because now, you think it should be legal doesn't mean that it should be, right? Right. And, and you know, now, I, you know, I take a different outlook on the whole pot thing. And I mean, even like when my daughter was younger, I was, you know, no, you don't need to be doing this. You don't need, you know, but now I'm like, God, I would rather them smoke pot than, you know, drink, drink yeah. and be face down in a frat house basement. Right. Yeah. I mean, because that shit happens, you know, you know, yeah, it absolutely does. So, of course, you know, Rachel convinces her dad. He she promises him she's going to do well. And he's like, OK, but you're not going to take your car. So she packs her bag and they take her to college. Well, and she mean, knew lots yeah. of people don't have cars there. Yeah. And, and I didn't even know, like some schools don't even allow freshmen to have cars. Oh, I guess FSU does. I don't know. Probably because there's a lot of local people maybe mm-hmm. and then there's yeah. the close cities around and there is a big community college there too yeah there well and then you've got FAMU there and yeah right yeah all right well so so Rachel knew her dad was apprehensive about her going so she left him a really sweet letter he found it on his counter when he uh, got back but in one part of the letter she told him don't worry she reminded him that he raised her to be a good moral person and she promised him that she would always be that good moral person you know so she um yeah already mourning for this dad yeah she majored in psychology to you know follow her dad's footsteps she was a b average student in college she made a lot of good friends and she had a passion for the music scene she often attended concerts and music festivals which are all over the place 
in North Florida. Like, you mm-hmm. know, we have Suwanee has all kinds of festivals and mm-hmm. of course Tallahassee. Um, she well, was they, cool. They have a lot of things that they do downtown. Like they have the springtime Tallahassee, per, you know, they have right. the parades. Yeah. They, they have a lot of, you know, they have vendors set up. It's just more, I mean, there's not a Atlanta scale. Yeah. or This you know, is more like, you know, kind of the subculture, kind of like, you know, the music scene. Mm-hmm. Well, they do uh, have that too. I mean, they have yeah, that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Rachel was the cool girl. I mean, everybody loved her. She, she would cook a meal for you. She'd take everybody out to sushi. Um, she would also sell you a quarter of weed if you needed one. Mm. Uh, she, she promoted a lot of bands in the area and kind of like okay I think I have like a kind of like a hippie type hipster yeah. probably like the hipster type but she was a little bit more like you know pot culture mm-hmm. you know she'd have like posters of John Lennon on her wall and I think she, they listed the posters that she had on her wall she probably was super upset or not obsessed but like into like the, the patchouli that, crowd right know? yes yes all right like you know she probably really digged the fact that you know Jim Morrison went to Florida State and, right you know, yeah probably stuff. I didn't actually know. yeah you didn't know that no yes he he got expelled and one of my professors that I had who is very old um he was there he was a professor at Florida State when Kennedy was assassinated Okay. And then he told us the story about when his great grandmother told or grandmother told him the story about Sumter being fired upon when she was standing on her front porch. Oh, um, wow. Right. But he actually served on the board who and was coming to Jim Morrison's defense to not oh. as reasons not to expel him. So he was expelled because of pot and drugs oh, and alcohol or okay. I think so. I don't remember the reason, but it was just I read like that a, book, yeah. All right. So I just want to make point out that she embraced that weed subculture, Mm -hmm. but in the state of Florida, possession of weed was against the law at the time. So it was that on, well, possession of 20 grams or more. All right. So that was, that's a felony. That's a felony. It's a third degree felony. Yes. Okay. Yes. I keep thinking who was, I'm sorry to interrupt that I have this, I have this band in my head of that. I think that like, is how you're trying to describe her and now I can't even like um fish or grateful dead or yeah yeah like she would have gone to 311 concerts and (laughs) Uh, she was actually she got up on the stage with a a band called um dumps 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 which is kind of a popular band yeah I mean she dubbed conscious there were a couple of different bands I I found a really, there was actually a tribute to her at um, a festival, but I'm going to talk more about that next week. This is a two-parter, by the way, so be sure to listen next week to hear the ending. But All right, so anyway, she was pulled over for speeding, and she had already had a couple speeding tickets. She's got a lead foot, like I have, so she mm-hmm. was pulled over. Um, she's about to graduate. She's a senior in 2007. It's February, and she's pulled over Uh, for speeding on Tennessee. And when the Mm -hmm. officer approaches her car, he smells pot. So he's like, okay, I smell pot. She's like, yeah, I was just smoking it with my friends. But then when he asked her to get out, she admitted that she had some in her purse and he arrested her and found in her possession, 25.7 grams of pot in a mason jar and $450 in cash. Now, do we know if this was Tallahassee Police Department or? Yes, it was TPD. Okay. Okay. So possession of 20 grams of cannabis in Florida, as I said, was a third degree felony punishable of up to five years in state prison. And medical marijuana wasn't a thing in 2007. Of course it is now mm-hmm. in, in the state of Florida. We still don't have recreational drug use here. But and it's racial, new. 
here. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's really new. Like we're in the infancy of it. But Rachel's parents paid for an attorney and she was ordered to drug court instead of prison. Drug courts are court-supervised comprehensive drug treatment courts for eligible nonviolent defendants. It's voluntary. It involves numerous appearances in front of a drug, drug court judge or magistrate. Hmm. There are also substance abuse treatment and frequent random drug testing for substance abuse. And if you miss a day, it's automatic jail time. Okay. Wow. Okay. Or if you fail. So she complied with the arrangement and the reported appearances and passed a random drug test. Now I did read that she was still using, but she was passing those drug tests somehow. One of our friends that she had grown up with, gone to Hebrew school, kid named Cole, his dad died and he needed her. So she left to sit Shiva with her friend. And I mm-hmm. hope that I'm pronouncing that right, Shiva. You did. But it is mm-hmm. um, a Jewish uh, death ritual and uh, is very important to her friend that, that, I mean, they were best friends. Like they had plans. They were the kind of friends that um, if they weren't, they made a pact that if they weren't married by a certain age, they were going to marry each other because they're good Jewish kids and we're going to have children. And, but she of course missed a mandatory drug test date. And when she returned and appeared the next time she was arrested for failure to appear for a drug test. She did. And did she not notify someone, I guess? No, she didn't notify anyone. Like she oh. just didn't show up. Oh, okay. um, she ended up spending a weekend in jail from April 4th through 6th, 2008 in the Leon County jail. Now she tried to make light of it to her friends, but she did admit the jail was scary and she never, ever wanted to go back there again. I uh, imagine so. Yeah. So it kind of straightened her up, straightened her up. You know, she had been biding her time to finish drug court because to get on with her life because her parents and she did not realize that she could have taken it somewhere else. That she could have left Tallahassee. They thought she was tied to Tallahassee. There. So she thought that she had to stay there until she finished the program, not realizing that she could have transferred it, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, I have a question. I'm sorry uh-huh. again to interrupt. With the drug court, you said if she, you know, she automatic jail time if you messed up and you missed something. So, but it didn't null and void the drug court. She just had to go spend some time in jail or she was she now- want A weekend in jail. So then, okay. you know, and so then that was like it, a punishment. It wasn't yes. like she's now a felon. It's probably, no, they didn't automatically like, okay. they didn't automatically say, okay, now you're going to prison. They just more time added on. I'm not sure. Okay. But you know, while she's been biding her time to finish this, she was accepted into a master's program in mental health um, counseling, I believe in Fort Lauderdale in part due to an essay that she wrote about her grandparents who witnessed the murder of their family and who were severely and emotionally scarred. She said that they had taught her the importance of family, hard work, and economic survival. She still smoked pot. She sold it in small quantities to her friends. But immediately after getting out of jail, she told her friends that, you know, I'm more focused on my future than ever. I want to finish drug court and get the hell out of Tallahassee. That's her goal. Now she's not so sure about grad school, though. She told her dad that now she wants to go to culinary school. So she was supposed to go to Fort Lauderdale. Now she wants to go to Fort to culinary school. She loves cooking. She's passionate about cooking. And she's like, dad, I have this great idea. I could take my passion for cooking and my psychology degree and make a difference with troubled young people. It could be a new kind of therapy. She said, wrong. <laughs> no, she said, perhaps troubled kids who hated talking to a therapist from an overstuffed couch would open up as she taught them how to bake cakes and make spaghetti carbonara. 
2008, her apartment was raided by Tallahassee Police Department. Hmm. Now, she lived at Polo's on Park Avenue. Do you know where that is? Um, the Polo on Park Apartments. Yes, I believe it's like a dormitory style. I think complex. it's a nicer gated apartment complex because I did I did read somewhere that um, her friends her friends were some of her friends were not comfortable going over to her house because one time when she went out of town her house was busted into and a lot of things were taken hmm. and then another time one of her friends was in her living room with her when there was a home invasion. Jeez. And she was robbed. And I'm not even sure that this was reported to the police. But what I do know is that her parents ended up moving her to this nicer gated apartment complex. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like I said, I've read a few different articles um, and different perspectives on the raid. So I'm going to just give you a few of them. So one of them says that the Tallahassee Police Department were working on a tip from a confidential informant. Mm. Now, another article says that someone anonymously called the Tallahassee Police Department because they smelled pot coming from her apartment. But then another article claims that it was one of her neighbors who called the police saying that it was constant revolving door people coming in and out like a drug house and it and the hallway always smelled like pot. They're sick of it. Mm-hmm. So what we do know is that the police came knocking. She opened the door. Instead of asking for a warrant, and denying them entry or calling her attorney, she answered their questions truthfully and let them in. Did they have a warrant? They did not. How do you raid a home without a warrant? She, well, they, all the articles called it a raid, even the Florida Senate report, but they did not have a search warrant. She allowed them entry to search, but they, it's all, it's called a raid. Red flag. Keep that in mind because that's what I'm going to get into a little bit more next week. So there are a lot of red flags. That's one of them. Hmm. Now, reportedly, because reportedly I'm, I'm looking at a lot of different sources here. Some of this I'm getting from this Florida Senate report, which of course is going to be a little bit biased as in we don't want Florida to take responsibility for this. Right. So they're going to try to place shift the blame to the victim. This is from one of the slanted bias articles. Okay, so Rachel told, um, reportedly, she told the officer that she did have drugs in her apartment and she allowed them to enter and search it. Now, one source reported that they found a quarter pound of pot and six ecstasy pills. Ooh. And a ledger that had 11, what? I said, that's like seven or eight felonies right there. Right. Um, They also claimed to have found a ledger that had 11 names with amounts next to those names. So at this point, I imagine that she's scared as shit. She's thinking, I'm going, I violated the terms of my drug court again. And she has to know that the prison is her next step. I mean, I can almost feel her relief when investigator Ryan Pender from Tallahassee Police Department Vice offers her a way out. All of this can possibly go away if she'll work as a CI for the Tallahassee Police Department. And as I said, a CI is the official abbreviation for confidential informant more commonly known as a snitch on the street. Yep. Um, I did read an excellent article that I'm also going to be citing. It was written by Sarah Stillman, published in the New Yorker on August 27, 2012. It was called The Throwaways. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this article next week, but basically it discussed the business of CIs, especially young first-time offenders in police departments throughout the country, so not just Tallahassee. Okay. Like it's a, it's, uh, it's an interesting money maker that we'll talk about, or it saves the police department money, which we'll talk about more next. And week. they actually pay their CIs. She did I mean, not, as far as I know, I've not seen any kind of 
transaction for money. I mean, supposedly, I mean, I mean, possibly some of them do, but this article did not write about any of those. This article wrote about like young offenders getting caught with, with pot and then avoiding prison time or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They do some of them, I guess, depending on what it is, they do get paid. Cause I, yeah, I just, I, I just know that. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Cause I was paid last week. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. (laughs) So of Hoffman's case, Stillman wrote, the cop seized slightly more than five ounces of pot and several ecstasy and Valium pills tucked beneath the cushions of her couch. I tried to look up the charges, but she wasn't arrested and those charges were never formally filed. (laughs) Red flag. Okay, so Hoffman was facing serious prison time for felony charges, including possession of cannabis with intent to sell and maintaining a drug house. Stillman described Ryan Pender as the officer in charge, a sandy-haired vice cop, who supposedly told Rachel that she might be able to help herself if she provided substantial assistance to the city's narcotics team. Okay, now I have another red flag. Uh, Vice is not drug enforcement. He was never referred to as vice in the Senate report or in the court documents. Okay, okay. That was Stillman's Yeah. Rachel agreed. She told Pender that she was an experienced drug dealer so she could help. And I'll talk more about this, this in another slide. She like believed that. She, I mean, do you explain why she, I mean, this is yes, I do. Girl. I do. Why is she still doing this? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So she believed that any charges against her could be reduced or even dropped. So I imagine that Rachel is eager to handle the situation on her own. Why upset her parents by going back to jail, costing them more money for an attorney and worrying them and, you know, getting their anger, their uh, disappointment. So this way she could help the cops make a few busts and put it all behind her. No one wouldn't have to know that she has been busted again and she could get the hell out of Tallahassee. Senate report on the case, which makes it seem like it was her idea to become an informant. Now, according to this report, when Pender interviewed her in her apartment, she told him she did not want to get into any more legal trouble. So she asked if she could be an informant. So this is what, this is how the state of Florida is saying it. This now is the report, okay. the f- report further states that Ms. Hoffman told Penner that she didn't have a job and she sold pot for a living, supposedly admitting that she had been selling five to 10 pounds of pot a week, which would be between $4,800 and $5,200 a pound. Now, if this were true, Rachel would have earned between $1.2 million and $2.7 million a year. I mean, you think your friends and family would know, right? if that's what you were making. Um, uh, but her friends and family are like- that explains yeah. why she was still doing it. Well, <laughs> exactly. And friends and family say there is no way she was making that much money. She would sometimes buy sushi or you know pay for a round of drinks, but she didn't have loads of money or anything. I did read where she had like a lot of coach purses and always, you know, when she wanted shoes or anything, she would go buy it. But that does not equate to 1.2 million. I also know that her parents still, you know, sent her gift cards and money and picked up the tab and stuff like that. Like the Senate committee agree that, you know, according to their report, there's insufficient evidence to determine that she actually did as much illegal business as she had led Pender to believe. And she certainly would have had reasons to exaggerate. And this I'm reading directly from their report here. Uh, She would have had reasons to exaggerate, e.g. to increase the chances of being accepted as a CI. Now, the report further states that regardless of the quantities involved, however, the likelihood is that she was still making her living selling pot. 
She was an experienced dealer, in other words, small time perhaps, but nevertheless not an amateur. And this is a quote from this report. Ms. Hoffman impressed Pender with her knowledge of the drug trade. She was quite fluent in the street language in which drug deals are transacted. Now, I just wonder about that. Like, oh yeah. I mean, I mean, well, is there a lingo? I guess there is. I don't know. I mean, I guess. I mean, I don't. All right. So according to this report, Pender offered to let her assist TPD as a CI. And as a result, she would not be immediately arrested. So she wasn't arrested. In addition, no one notified drug court, her probation officer, or the state's attorney about the bust. It was just a secret between her and these investigators. Okay. Okay, got some red flags there. Yep. Now, it wasn't a secret because she called some of her friends. Like, you know, she's, she's like, oh my God, they just left. Um, she called her boyfriend. She called her mom. She did not call her dad. She's like, I just, you know, this is my mess. I want to get out of it. The cops are cool. I like them. So I'm going to help them. And according to the Stillman article, she put Pender's number in her phone as Pooh Bear, like in her contacts. Okay. Now her mom's like, you are absolutely not going to turn CI we'll talk about this in the morning. We'll take care of things. And Rachel agreed. They hung up and you know what? She told her mom, I won't do it, but she did it anyway. Hmm. Rachel did show up for her appointment with Pender the very next day as they planned. And she was told that if she provided substantial assistance to TBD as a CIA, CI, CIA, substantial, like small pot bus don't count that she could work off the potential charges stemming from the search of her apartment, which were possession of cannabis with intent to sell, possession of ecstasy, maintaining a drug house, possession of a controlled substance with intent to sell, and possession of paraphernalia. Okay, I have a question. Did they confiscate all of that? I'm, yes. So what'd they do with it? I don't know. I I mean, mean, I never read anything about any of that. Because you can't just enter stuff into how do you enter it into evidence i don't know what i did read was what they presented in the senate report i also have the findings which i'm going to get into next week so maybe i'll be able to answer will you write that question down because i'll look at i'll make sure i address it next week yeah because i think they do talk about all that because you know this was and i'm sure their policies and their procedures are definitely changed now but at the time this was common practice Okay, so the report stated that Rachel was given an opportunity to contact her attorney, you know, that they're going to put this in writing. She was given an opportunity to contact her attorney, but she declined because, quote, according to multiple sources, Ms. Hoffman neither liked nor trusted him, end quote. The Senate report said that the evidence does not show that the police threatened, bullied, coerced, or lied to Ms. Hoffman to induce her to become a CI. To the contrary, the evidence persuasively establishes that she was eager to cooperate and did so freely and voluntarily. Ms. Hoffman signed and initialed the documents in the CI packet, including a confidential informant code of conduct, and she also separately initialed each of the 20 number paragraphs of the code. The report makes it seem like she was eager and confident to help, but texts to friends show that she was scared about possibly being robbed or killed. Uh, yeah. They put her to work the very next day, April 18th, 2008. That was the day after her house was raided. She made her first controlled call as a CI to an FSU student that she knew who sold drugs. And the intent was for her to arrange to buy X from this guy. You know, she met with him. She talked to him. He needed more time to put it together for her. So they agreed to meet later on at a bar. I see your face. Anything? I just, I mean, that. She's just setting up this dude she knows that that she can buy X from. 
Right. No, I'm just thinking like how fast this is kind of like going with, it takes time to set up CIs and to do this stuff. I mean, I don't. Yeah. The very next day. So she's getting a lot of training, right? I'm thinking. Mm. Yeah. And usually if they want like a large scale, like. Okay. And we are going to get to that. It would be like, I mean, usually that's when they call in the FDLE and the DEA and. Okay. Yes. And they did. They did all that. So the intent was for her to buy X from this guy, but he needed more time. He's like, I can't get all that, you know? So when she met up with him later that night at a bar, he confronted her because he already knew she had been busted. So then she starts crying and they're drinking a few beers and they talk and she tells him everything. I missed drug court. I went to jail. She starts from the very beginning and he, you know, she's, she, I, I see a lot of um, descriptions of her as being tall, lanky, hot, redhead, you know, super personable. And she's crying and he's like, look, I can help you. She confesses to him that she, that he, that she's a CI and of course, that effectively ends the attempt to set him up for a buy-bust operation, according to the Senate report, which says, quote, somewhat surprisingly, however, DS, and those are the, na- the initials of this guy that she tried to set up. So I'm going to always call him DS from now on. Okay. But DS was willing to work as a CI to help Ms. Hoffman avoid her potential charges. Ms. Hoffman reported this to Pender, and he arranged to meet with them on April 21st. The throwaway article I read said that Rachel and this guy talked over a couple hours. She told him her whole story from start to finish. He felt bad for her. So he decides to help her. They came up with a payment arrangement. He's going to help her bust someone. She's going to pay his electric bill. So she pays it. He agrees to meet with Pender on April 21st, 2008 to help Rachel so she could be done with her legal problems and move on. I have some problems with this story. Okay. Okay. What kind of person who sells drugs is going to say, feel sorry for a girl and say, oh, I'll help you. And then is going to meet with a cop and turn CI just to help her out. Right. Does that sound right? No. I mean, I'm thinking that maybe she did bust him or something and now they're going to work together, but that's not how it is in the Senate report. Okay. That's my own personal guess. Um, yeah. I could be hundred percent wrong. Cause he would be super pissed off that she was trying to bust him. Right. I just can't see it. I mean, I can see, I mean, she's a cool girl and I can see me, you know, forgiving her for anything pretty much, but um, I just don't see it. DS's assistance led to a successful buy bust operation a couple days later on April 24th, which was credited toward Ms. Hoffman's substantial as- assistance, but that's not enough to clear her. In a confidential deposition, one of Rachel's friends attested that the police made it clear that little pot bus wouldn't be enough to work off her charges. So here we are with what you said. Instead, they're looking for large quantities of heroin, crack, cocaine, ecstasy, and guns. Because a small, uh, you know, a small scale pot dealer. Right. They're just trying to go up the food chain a little bit with these little bus. The report states that DS was the person who came up with the target, the, the final target, who happened to be 26-year-old Andrea Green, who I'm going to refer to as Dre or Green from now on. So it's a guy, he's 26. The article said that he was a violent offender, already had a record. I know he did have some offenses for smelling, uh, smelling, probably that too, but for selling pot. I could not find any of his records. And I did ask you to look that up for me, but I guess you didn't find anything either, huh? Or did you not have time in your busy, busy life? I'll continue to dig it up, but I didn't see anything like violent anywhere. Because you did ask me to look it up and, you know, how my day imploded yesterday. Yeah, no worries. Um, It's my murder. What was the city, though, that you told me? Uh, It was in Taylor County, um, Perry, Florida. 
So if you, you know, if you find it, if you could just send me the link, I'll add that to next week's. But I could not find anything violent on this guy. But his picture, he looks pretty pretty ruthless. Now I'm going to refer to him as dryer green from now on. He DS told Pender that green worked at a car wash tent shop on Tennessee with another guy. And he didn't remember the guy's name. And he said that they were drug dealers and they could get whatever he wanted, like guns or whatever, big shit. You know, these guys were not on the police's radar until DS came up with their name that the Senate report kept mentioning that, I guess. So I guess it's important somewhere along the way. Now, Rachel knew who DS was talking about immediately because she remembered taking her car to that car wash just a week or two before. And the guy was joking with her because, you know, her pot, her car reeked like pot. So right. they kind of are, she's like, oh yeah, we have, we kind of have um, a connection. So she was a little bit confident after leaving the police station on April 21st, DS and Miss Hoffa went straight to the car wash. They come out with this idea and they go straight to the car wash to establish connection. Okay. There, DS introduced Rachel to Dre Green, and he explained that Green's looking for some some drugs. Green's like, here's my number. Call me later. Rachel called Pender. This led to Miss Hoffman's second operation as a CI, which took place on May 5th. 2008. Rachel made phone contact and arranged to meet with Green at the car wash. So she was wired during the phone conversation. And then she was also wired when she went to the car wash to meet with Green. So her goal was to wear the wire to the car wash, meet with him to purchase the drugs. She followed instructions and the operation went according to plan, except that instead of meeting Green, she met his stepbrother-in-law, Danilo Bradshaw, who's married to Green's stepsister. He had a couple kids, one on the way. He told Rachel that he and Green worked together as a team and that they could do the deal the next day. So again, the drug deal's put off to the next day. So according to the report, Rachel was supposed to buy a stash of cocaine, 1,500 ecstasy pills, and a small and pretty handgun. And they caught this on wire. She told the guys that she wanted the drugs when they say, why do you need all that? She's like, oh, I have some Miami friends who are coming up to visit and then they're like well why is a little thing like you need a gun she smoothly replied i'm a little jewish girl i need to be safe they arranged to have another meeting which was supposed to lead to the by bus at the car wash but the cops ended up aborting it because green and bradshaw said they needed more time they could only get their hands on 400 x pills not 1500 and that's not enough for the cops i guess really yeah so the cops said no we need 1500 not 400 so they decided that they would give Green and Bradshaw more time to come up with the 1500 pills. In the report, it says, although this operation was not successful, Ms. Hoffman performed her role exactly as expected without incident. Okay. They scheduled the deal to go down on May 7th at one of the suspect's parents' homes in the Summerbrook neighborhood, which is on the east side of North Meridian Road. Mm -hmm. But Green changed his mind. Then they talked about meeting at a Walmart parking lot in Thomasville Road. But again, no. Finally, the place was agreed upon, which was in a parking lot near the tennis course at Forest Meadows Park. Let me read directly from one of the articles. She was to show up with $13,000. They'd make the swap at Bradshaw's parents' house in a quiet green neighborhood on the outskirts of Tallahassee. Behind the scenes, the police worked up an operational and raid plan, which involved more than a dozen local and federal agents. On the afternoon of the drug bust, Hoffman drove to police headquarters where she was wired up. Officer Pender placed a surveillance wire and a recording device in her purse, along with stacks of money for the buy. It was $13,000. Wow. So she's wired. She's on her way. She has some text messages. Um, she sent she sent one to her boyfriend and he replies, I kind of like you, so be safe. And she took off for the park. 
So she's driving about 15 minutes and she's nearing the entrance of Forest Meadows, but instead of turning, she she turns too quickly. So she turns into the wrong little part. She's on the phone with Pender and he's like, you turn in the wrong place, you need to go to the correct entrance. So then she goes to the right place farther north. Now, after this, things get a little sketchy. Pender loses track of her. There were, I think, 19 different police officers and a DEA helicopter. Other officers later reported that they had all thought that Pender, or at least someone, had eyes on her. She began driving toward a plant nursery just a mile and a half north, evidently thinking that police were still monitoring her. Within minutes, her audio surveillance equipment went dead. Oh, I lost her over the wire, Pender said to his colleagues at 6.46 p.m. She wasn't answering her cell phone. And according to Pender, she managed to reach him a few minutes later saying, I followed them from the nursery. We're on Gardner. It looks like the deal is going to go here. It's a dead end street. Pender later said that he told her, turn around, turn around, do not follow them. But then the phone cut off. He said, I had no response for her. Pender told investigators, which meant, you know, either she hung up on me or we lost the signal. So is that recorded? Like his? That part is recorded. Yes. So he, and then it goes blank. So he uh, is, you know it, I'm guessing it's recorded. It was under, I mean, she was wired. Okay. Yes. So this is all so in the Senate report. Like all that, that I just read. Yes. Not to go. Yes. So now I'm stopping here. Um, so be sure to listen to the rest of the story next week because there's so much more. I mean, it seems like it's going to be. She just kind of went her own way here. So you know, we're mm. going to find out next week what happened. I wonder if she was like kind of, um, kind of like an adrenaline high off I of think it. Too, yeah. Like, you know what? I want this. I want to get this over with now. They keep dragging this out. You know, she thought she was going to finish like weeks ago with the other bus and they're like telling her more and more and they're making her, they're pushing her to get this done, even though every time, you know, this is like her third or fourth operation. It's like, I just want to get it. I'm, that's mm-hmm. what I'm thinking. She just wanted to get it over with, uh, be done with it. And she figured, you know what? These guys are all following me and I'm wired, so I'm fine. Golly. Yep, and that's exactly, I mean, because that's what you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. I'm going to stop there and talk more about this next week. All right, wow. I, I will say that this, if I was in a situation like this and this is the only way to get out of whatever trouble I was in and, and I agreed to do this, the second a cop says, do not follow them, I would be like, oh. Ewe and out of there. I'm a chicken shit too of some things. And so. I'm not sure that's what he said that he said. So I don't know. And I don't know if, if she followed them. Like, like one of the articles said that she t- texted him or was talking into the wire. Now I think maybe she, he's hearing this, but she's talking to them. So she can't be on the phone listening to him at the same time. Right. And that's why so, I was asking, I wonder if it was recorded that or if that's actually, just what he's that's saying. A conversation with her. Right. So we'll talk more about that next week. Cause I don't want to, uh, I don't want to give anything else away. Okay. Okay. Chaz had asked me to do this. Like this is super close to home. I mean, honestly, we're not that far from Tallahassee and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, these kids all go to the same music festivals. And of course she's, she would be what in her closer forties now. She was born in 84, so she would be late 30s. Yeah, she'd be 36, give or take. So, I mean, she would be probably a mother and a wife right now, PTA and soccer and a totally different person. 37, 38, yeah. Yes, probably a totally different person. And, you know, grown up and matured and someone who would make our parents proud. And, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. So, yeah. And that is scary. I mean, 
because they do want you to bring them something that's worth them dropping your charges or, but usually you get arrested first and then, you know, so this is like, it doesn't start off exactly, you know, textbook, I guess, in my mind, usually you would get arrested and then you would have a lawyer who would then say, okay, well, I, you know, let me see. I know some, you know, this has happened in the past and they, then they would hook up with their federal agent friends and they would, work out a deal and you would go and talk to them. Not so much. Um, it, it doesn't like transpire there in the living room of the raid. Or, and I think that it yeah. snowballed so fast because I also think that, you know, Rachel and that guy DS had talked about it and they had this idea. So they kind of like push it along maybe a little faster than I have no idea. I have no idea. I just have all these different perspectives on it. So I try not to put my own thoughts in it too much, but I did a lot, didn't I? I did a lot in speaking, but, um, I don't know. I, I just tell my kids, you know what, if you're arrested, take your punishment. I'm just, or we'll pay, we'll get through this together. Do not do that. No, no. I mean, you know, if these guys were, I don't know, it's almost like they set these guys up for it. They weren't like out trying to sell things to begin with. Right. If that makes sense. I mean, and it doesn't even like, sound like that she runs in the same circles as what, no. you know, some of these people. No. Usually you have to be in the know and you have to, you know, already run the circle, run in these circles, not just a, hey, I'm this random person that wants, right. I mean, that's just suspicious already. And I, you know, and that's curious how DS kind of like introduced her into that. So that's, you know, like the whole mm. thing with him just voluntarily helping her. I find that very hard to believe. I feel yeah. like somehow he was like on the other side, a CI, a CI also, um, or maybe who knows? That's another thought I have, which I'll get into more next week. So, so that's it for this week. Uh, Thanks everybody for joining us. We appreciate sharing our passion with you. And we thank you for your support. And if you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. And for more information, links to our Facebook and Instagram pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime loving friends and family. Also, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved Patreons or <laughs> patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't, it wasn't me. me.